Today is January 23rd, 2024. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chestokom Aki or Dekots Nagotine Siku. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot, and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene, excuse me, elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe. Uh, so this would be in Treaty 11. And uh, my people wore rabbit skin. So it's often re been referred to as the land of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is an invited guest to this area of Clincho Tine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big town named after the Calgary Stampede. So I intentionally said uninvited because unless you've talk to the treaty holders you are uninvited so if i hear people say they are an invited guest one more time i'm gonna lose it um i was born here in calgary or in blackfoot mokinstis has michelle elliott an english name that has afforded me privilege in an english colonial world my mother is northern slavey dene or satu dene but my indian act and post status card by the canadian government says yellow nice dene through my father, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution, while having a Canadian Indian Act and Post Status Guard, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights, Indigenous Two-Spirit, or the Indigenous 2S LGBTQ community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. According to the 2023 Quality of Life Report from the Calgary Foundation, 21% of racialized Calgarians cannot find suitable employment. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share my journey as I walk. As a Dene woman who has attempted to run, join harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel those to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allows for incarceration, a denial of justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, the genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples, I have worked to continue reports to advocate for an attempt to work. Well, I don't know. I think I might take out that attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community because I've tried. Don't. <laughs> I think of all of Maybe this today. you've been too accommodating. It often seems that way. Yeah, no, I clearly, I, uh, you know, you, you, you try. And, and I think for me too, it's part of that bigger picture of, you know, at least I tried. You know, I, I can sleep at night knowing I try. Did they try? No, but at least I did. <laughs> I think of all of this today, and I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives lost for this so-called country named Canada. I hope you all see your role in the importance of stopping harm as a citizen and as a role in reconciliation and as a treaty partner. Um, today, I'm, I'm just going to mention that Cindy, uh, or Cindy... <laughs> <laughs> where that came from my uh, mom's Lily, name. there you go well, she must be with us uh <laughs> lily gladstone was nominated for an oscar and i think that you know we talk about treaty partnership and this is a member of the blackfeet nation 
And I think people don't understand, like she has the rights to this territory and we are uninvited um, inhabitants, basically. It's a nice way to say it. And I think it's really important because it is today in 1870, we acknowledge that the United States Cavalry attacked uh, the peaceful Bagani in Montana, and it's been called the Baker Massacre, where approximately 217 Blackfeet died, were murdered by the U.S. Cavalry, and most of the survivors were children. So it's it was uh, minus 30 degree weather, and they were in the middle of smallpox when the U.S. Cavalry decided this was a great day for all of this. And Terrell Tailfeathers reminds us on Twitter that one of the survivors, Holy Bear Woman, um, a lot of the descendants are now members of the Gainai and the Blood Tribe, um, or the Blood Tribe, he says, actually. So I think that's really important to, to say right now, today, out of all days, when we talk about treaty partnership, and I, I just don't feel like people really understand the gravity of that. That's the legal document that allows you to live here. And most people don't know that because, of course, the Canadian government has kept that from you. Uh, Pride Month is one month that should never just be one month. <laughs> it's uh, it's important to understand that the straight agenda and that gendered violence was and is forced on this lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgments are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous honoring the host as an uninvited guest, acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. Can they be performative? Of course, it's important land acknowledgements have that meaning. We know when you're full of crap. Um, so I understand, I, I encourage everyone to introduce themselves, acknowledging their ancestors, stories of displacement, and how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee, or other land displacement. So we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. Because if you won't pronounce your local Indigenous nations names, won't say your pronouns, won't say your story of origin, you don't acknowledge stolen lands, imposed economic oppression, or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my family, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101 because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves, well, I'm a native Calgarian, or whatever town you're from, you show me you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Winty's book, Unreconciled, explains this perfectly, as do many Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could we could save the planet from climate change created by capitalist colonialism, but it would be a part of a treaty partnership, meaningful reconciliation, honoring global initiatives like the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, and of course, that treaty. So I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is a Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot South and the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that included the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Good Stony, Chiniki, Bears Pond Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. 
Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe or you can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. So with that, I wanted to introduce my, um, my guest and my friend. Would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Sure. So thanks for calling me your friend. That's nice. Um, I'm Danielle English, and I am absolutely an uninvited guest on this land. I am a settler, and I completely agree with you. I think white people never want to say that because it makes us feel bad and guilty. And so we choose our own comfort level um, at the, the, the safety of really the Indigenous culture. And I just never want to do that. Like, I exist in so much privilege. Um, I'm a white passing. I'm, I'm white. <laughs> I, I, I exist in a lot of privilege in the harm reduction space as well, because um, I can pass in a way in an academic setting that not all of my peers can. Um, but yeah, I am an uninvited settler onto this land and I, I'm a harm reduction advocate. And I also just want to start by saying that I recognize that the, the drug poisoning crisis disproportionately impacts the indigenous culture. And, and so there's so much of my story and so much of my work that is still privileged because I'm white. Um, I haven't experienced persecution from the police the way that other colleagues and other people have who are indigenous. And I always wanna own that. I have more access to resource. I have more access to safety in society and safety in spaces. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm sitting here with a great amount of privilege. I own that. It does make me uncomfortable. I, I do feel bad about it, but I'm never going to disrespect the Indigenous culture by lying and pretending that that's not the place I'm sitting in. It is. Yeah, no, I don't know why it, it's such a hard concept and I don't know why. Um, you know, I, I have a friend that I know is releasing a book today on uh, her role on you know, apprehension of children for the Indian residential schools. And, you know, it's, it's hard. I'm sorry. I never have this happen. I swear to God, I'm just going to pause for one minute here. Yeah, it's totally. Okay. My dog is still barking, but at least he's safe in his kennel. Yeah. We're rolling with it. And he's Mine's not going to, you know, tear down my drapes or something. I know I've got a pit bull too. And she keeps me going. Well, it's ironic because I just came from the store, got him this cute little ball to keep him occupied. Nope. No, nope. we're, we're barking. Yeah, that's really how it goes. Whenever you try to prepare, they say no thanks and they do the opposite. So I left my apartment because I knew mine would do that. I've done media with like CBC and in the background, my stupid dog is going bum, 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 bum. And it's just like, you yep. do what you yeah, I, you know, I had a beagle and she did it while I was on with Russia TV. I'm like, awesome. Thanks. Great. Thanks yeah, for ruining that. this. That That's great. That's great. Well, but we'll I, roll with it. Yeah, exactly. But at least I know he's safe. He has a bone if he ever chose to bite it. He just wants to bark. Mm -hmm. so no, mine has everything she could ever need. I yeah. might not. <laughs> So, so yeah, I, I was talking about my friend who she's authoring a book actually, and uh, tonight's the book launch and she's talking about her role in all of this. And, you know, our book club, we've 
had settlers talk about their role in all of this as well. So I just wish that settlers would feel empowered enough to just acknowledge the past, you know? It's the only thing we can do. Like no. I, I can't go back and, and, and make those changes. There's also very little I can do with actual policy now. Believe me, I try. But on it's, a bare minimal level, yeah. I can always acknowledge and own my own. Yeah privilege and 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 allow the truth about what is happening to the indigenous culture happen it is genocide we need to say that out loud we need to say that in academic spaces and we need to say it with our full chest and if we're white we really need to say it I think it's deeply important you know if I'm ever working in a harm reduction space and police are to come it's my role to deal with those police officers if a ticket is given it is my role to take that ticket that's that's the best that I can do right now. And I'm I'm happy to do it. So I don't understand it either. I really think it's about our culture doesn't know how to deal with guilt or shame or anything. So they don't want to acknowledge it at all. But that is further harm. Now it you is. Have, have become a harmful person yeah. by denying the truth. Yeah. No, and, and that's what that's where we're at, where we have so many folks committed to denialism. Totally. And not listening. Like I, we were joking on the way here, like how many people will do these like mental gymnastics to deny the truth and how I could start a rumor and it will like fly like wildfire as long as it's something like that might oppress a bl- uh, white man's privilege, right? That'll fly even if it's not true. Um, and, and I'm just finding that so frustrating where we see that a lot in my space as well, where we have documented evidence and data, we put that evidence and data forth. And then the government policymakers, whoever says, ah, we don't believe these numbers. Where'd you get these numbers? This is actually what we've seen. And then they talk about their anecdotal experience. And I'm like, we're giving you factual information and you're discrediting it with your anecdotal biased opinion. And that is really what is running our society right now yeah. it's anecdotal white cis male colonial capitalist opinion and we will do any sort of cognitive dissonance or mental gymnastics to make yeah. that work i, I see know a lot of harm reduction it's really scary it is really frustrating i don't know how many um folks that i've just quit working with in harm reduction in general because uh you know they, they just don't want to learn yeah um, and here's the thing if your resources in a church get out of my group. You are not a safe person. No one from my community can safely go to that space. You know, and we see this with treatment and we see this recovery-based ideology. That is so Christian and so whitewashed and so unsafe for so many people, people that are neurodivergent, people that are queer, people that are using substances, indigenous people, people of color, like it's, it's really, it's really a scary world. And that's what we are pushing as the solution. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm really frustrated. I've tried to advocate for culturally safe supports. And honestly, I just find that the governments give money to the very people who refuse to, you know, acknowledge what treaty they're on, who the people they're serving are on. Um, but that's on purpose, right? Yeah, I know. It, it says it's, we have a broken system. We don't. We, we don't. have a system that was working exactly as it's intended to. Yep. It's intended to keep white men safe. And that is what it does. And so it's no, it's no surprise to me that that's who gets its funding. Because in this world, if you're critical of police or government, you don't get any money. So that's also a problem. 
Yeah, no, I uh, was just having a conversation last night with Taylor McNally. Um, she had just finished her third weekend of serving this like 30 day sentence that she was given that is so unjust. Like um, if there was ever a moment in time, it is this moment we have given them you know, anti-racism training resources. We have given them Indigenous education resources. We have given them harm reduction education resources. To watch the Palestinians being mistreated by the police right now, while the trucker convoy literally had plots to murder RCMP. Like, it is so obvious what's happening here right now. And for so anyone... even with COVID, you know, yeah, we had both. all these people who said my body, my choice. Well, was yeah. it my body, my choice when I wanted to have an abortion? Because <laughs> then it wasn't my body, my choice. Right. So they pick and they choose yeah. and they co-opt parts of movements that they actively go against. Yeah. You know, they talk about freedom of body. I've never had a free body as, as a woman who has a personality disorder. My right. body has always been something that people have pushed the boundary on because my own idea of what's happened to me gets discredited because I'm delusional and hysterical and irrational. So you can do anything you want to me and no one will believe you. And I'm a privileged white woman. So yeah. like, whoa. Gaslighting is a, a real issue. Medical um, gaslighting, all of it. Yeah. I actually, I'm going to be talking in my resources about gaslighting being a part of all of this, because that's that's how they get away with it. And and it is shocking to me the amount of like non-Indigenous people that claim to be my friend on Facebook, but just don't seem to understand any of this. Um, I, I've really, you know, I, I've gone a lot on that. We were talking earlier about how I was like part of these political processes, et cetera. And I'll tell you, I've tried. Like there's, there's not a question. I have absolutely tried to work within these systems and that they don't work for the people. They are literally only there to protect capitalism and settler colonialism. So the moment you try, you know, and, and what's gonna happen is just more indigenous people die. We're gonna make, I don't know, four or five more reports. And oh my God, I have no idea how all these natives died. Yeah, I, we do, we have reports, we, you know, I feel the same way with the the toxic supply culture. Uh, We are doing the exact same thing to people who use substances and it's, it's heartbreaking and I don't know what's going to change. Well, you know, uh, the other day where, when we met, we were having a uh, solidarity rally. Did you want to talk at all of that about that? And and the biggest reason why I wanted to bring it up was that you're talking about the amount of death. Well, all of that was related because we have now um, exceeded the number of soldiers that died in the world wars with this and everybody's okay with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing that's really mind blowing. And even the solidarity march that we did, um, I looked for the media coverage the next day because I always wanna see how we're being covered, right? Yeah. Um, and I Googled, you know, safe supply. I do. I Googled Dolph. I, I Googled the things we were doing and nothing came up because yeah. the way that we were covered wasn't even true to what we were doing. And that's yeah. another thing that happens in this world where we make these radical moves and then the media downplays it and the media portrays it as something different. Um, but yeah, we were doing a, a, a march for safe supply. Um, so we were in solidarity with Dolph. 
uh, Dolph runs a compassion club out in Vancouver. So compassion clubs are a beautiful place. They are a place where folks can come. It's non-medicalized. Um, it's really like for the people, by the people. They can come, they can have a safe space to use. They get access to safe supply. And in the time that Dolph ran their compassion club, they saved so many lives. Um, there's was never a death at a compassion club. Uh, they did an amazing job. And they also bridge the gap between people who feel marginalized by the system and resources, right? Because they finally come somewhere where they're safe and they're heard. So maybe they'll start coming to other places and maybe they will start getting other resources. So they're just a really great resource and they are under attack by the government right now. They are in a lot of trouble and we want to come and, and support them and help them. And I want to take that even one step further. I want to say that I would run a compassion club if I could. I believe it's the ethical right thing to do if you are anybody in this organization, in this world. If you, we, we need people like this and, and I would be a person like this, you know? I believe in overdose prevention sites. I don't care if they're sanctioned or not. I believe that they're a medical response that we have to do. Because what you just said is true. The deaths are so high and that's probably the tip of the iceberg because so many drug deaths don't get reported as drug deaths. They get reported as unknown, uh, un unidentified. And so if people aren't looking into it, you know, it's not being labeled correctly. So the numbers that we have are, are, are not a, an accurate representation of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I guess the thing that's so frustrating is it's all completely, like we could completely save all of these folks. Oh, I if we give more. people access to safe supply and if yeah. we gave people access to safe spaces to use, we would completely mitigate all of this. Yeah. So it's just, it's become a moral issue. It's become an issue that is dealt with based on treatment-based ideology. And I am fundamentally against treatment-based 12-step ideology. Um, I have used substances for 15 years. Um, I've been in treatment several times. I was in the rooms of AA and NA by the time I was 15. And the things that happened to me in those rooms, in those treatment center places, and in those 12-step based recovery places was actually a lot of abuse. Yeah. You know, as, as a young woman in those rooms, yeah. it was a pretty horrific time for me. And yeah. I'm, I'm open to speaking about that because I think I have to. Good. You know, I, I experienced a lot of older men yeah. um, preying on me, you know, at times when I didn't have money and didn't have a ride places. And I always paid in other ways, you know, and I had a lot of sexual abuse that was done to me in the rooms for about 10 years. Mm. And I mean, I, I was talking the other day to someone and I remember when I was 19, I was so desperate to get sober because my life felt so chaotic and I was hurting so much. And actually I didn't need to get sober. I needed to get help for my mental health. But at the time, that's what I thought my option was. So I was so desperate yeah. and I had a sponsor and me and my sponsor would go over to this man's house who was about 65 and he would make us pray on our hands and knees at his feet. Uh -huh. So he had two women under the age of 20 kneeling, kneeling, like on their knees at his feet, praying to him. And we had to do this to show that we were humble and to show that we wanted to be alive because addicts are liars and addicts are self-centered. And so, yeah, he made us pray at his feet every Sunday for about two years. And I did that. And I thought that that was like, this is what I have to do to be loved by my parents and to not be selfish and to be a part of society. 
So yeah, and I mean, that's just the tip of it, right? Not to mention the amount of men that were 25 years older than me that were sleeping with me as a part of their sobriety program, you know? So I experienced a lot of sexual abuse. And then I also experienced um, a lot of abuse about my mental health. I was told by people in the rooms not to take medication, not to see a psychiatrist, that my problem was that I wouldn't submit to God and that until I believed in God, I would continue to struggle. So for 10 years, I was completely unregulated and had no help for my mental health. Oh my God. So yeah, like my story about treatment is, is really personal and I think it's happening to a lot of people. Okay. You know, I think we need to really just discuss that part there sure, about religious please. and spiritual abuse and sure. the intergenerational use of that and causing literally the trauma that's continuing addiction. So mm-hmm. like, and that is what the Alberta government is sanctioning that that's that just it. Gave me, that just gave me chills. Like yeah. as a 33 year old woman, most of my work right now on being well and safe for myself is around extreme sexual trauma. And I'm looking at all of the experiences of my 20s. And I'm so sorry that I was ever mad at that girl. I'm so sorry that I ever made her feel like she was doing anything wrong. You know, she was cutting herself and hurting herself because she was being really badly hurt by other people. And I, I, I want that girl to have a voice now. You know, I can't be intimate with a partner at 33. I disassociate. I leave my body. I've had extremely difficult times with intimate relationships. And, and I don't know if I'm ever going to recover from that, to be honest. And so it it is something that I really want to talk about. No, I'm grateful that you do, because I think that we have a, a lot of this happening, and especially in Indigenous circles. Um, you know, like I, I talk about Nathan Chasing Horse quite frequently as well. Um, that piece of crap is in a jail. I hope he fucking rots there. But he has to get convicted of what he's been doing too many under the guise of spiritual, you know, help and healing and stu- like we are all forced to undergo this. Like I, I wish people seen what a disease that this can be the spiritual abuse because it, I've gone to um, a sanctioned Alberta healthcare sanctioned uh, lodge and been told that they won't smudge with me because I'm too white. Even I know who I am. I know where I come from. I know I'm native, but I can't believe what is totally a-okay here. Um, it's gross. It's disgusting. And, and that's not even going down the road of sobriety and trying to navigate that world with AA, um, how many times I have told the Alberta government that it is harmful to be having these meetings in churches. And and quite frankly, the whole AA model is it's completely unregulated. It's completely unregulated. It's like completely we, unregulated therapy. Why yeah. was I 23 years old sitting yeah. in a room talking about being raped to a group of men? I That's know. not safe, baby girl. Like, I wish I could pick that girl up and say, get out of here. You know, but I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And you know what that did do? That made every predatory man in the room know she's yeah. the one I'm going to go for. Yeah. And you better believe they did go for me. Right. And they dressed it up as they loved me. They dressed it up as I was so smart and mature for my age. And they dressed it up as they wanted to show me sexual healing. And all they did was further rape me and further assault me. Yeah. And then I would go to people and say, this is happening. And they would say, well, were you manipulative? 
well, why were you doing that, Danielle? I don't know. You, you, you dress up for these meetings. You're wearing makeup in these meetings. You sure you don't want the attention? We think you're someone who loves attention. So then I was blamed for it. Then it was yeah. my fault. It was yeah. my fault because I wore a tank top in a meeting. It was my fault because I'm a sexual person. Yeah. It was my fault because I'm a woman that's opinionated. So I must be a slut. Yeah. And and God forbid you wear makeup and deodorant and take care of yourself because, you know, well, the Asking rest of us, it. right? Like, why'd you take the ride home, Danielle? Why, right. what, you know? Like, yeah. And I, I went to those meetings every single day for years and years and years. Yeah. And then when I couldn't do it anymore, I was told that, it was because I was sicker than most. And I was one of those people that couldn't be saved because I wouldn't be honest. So imagine the guilt and the shame on me now, right? Now I just feel like I'm an unsavable person. So what happened to me? My use went up and yeah. I lost my community. I no longer spoke to my family because I was so ashamed that I couldn't get better for them. And so I sat in my apartment alone and almost died in my apartment alone a lot. That's yeah, a lot. It's a, it's a heavy so one. Shitty. It is really shitty. And, and I don't think we realize that that's what we're doing to people. Yeah. And we have to talk about, you know, forced treatment. Yeah. Forced treatment is a jail cell. Yep. And it's also going to be the most marginalized that are forced into that. And no one's going to be looking into what's happening to them there. Because this is what I tell the, the general public all the time. Yeah. What is the success rate of treatment centers? Right. Uh, not good. You know, no. into that data, if you're planning on sending yeah. someone that you love somewhere, yeah. ask a medical professional, what's the success of this program? You know, it's so frustrating to me because I remember when uh, Ralph Klein shut and sh shut down all the mental health facilities. At the end of the day, we need mental health facilities like There's addiction. That. It's just like the problem is mental health. And we just are talking about addiction and making it this bigger thing. And it's like, no, addiction, right? It's like the substance right? use becomes a scapegoat. So I had a psychotic break in December. I had broken up with a partner. That's a big trigger for me. Mm -hmm. I went in and I was going in and out of psychosis. And yeah. so I tried to seek a bunch of resources. There were no resources. I called all the lines. Nobody was there. I left a message. Nobody called me back. So I tried to use public, didn't get help. Yeah. At the time I was working for someone who was willing to give me some benefits. So I went and saw a private therapist. I paid $265 to see her plus taking an Uber there and back because I don't drive. So I get there, I sit down, I tell her what's going on for me. I tell her that I'm having psychosis. I tell her that I'm having thoughts of self-harm. I tell her that I need some mental health support. So her only recommendation for me after hearing this whole story was to go to treatment, a substance abuse treatment. I said, I don't think you're hearing me. This has nothing to do with substance use. I am in psychosis right now and I am not using substances. I am experiencing sober psychosis. Yeah. Yes, I use substances. I'm not using them right now. Yeah. So I, I'm not here for any help on substances. I'm here for my help on my mental health. And she said, go to treatment. And I said, okay, I've been to treatment. It hasn't worked. Can you tell me the success of the program you're recommending? Yep. And then she gaslit me with my own mental health and said, wow, Danielle, this is your black and white thinking. This is your personality disorder. You're questioning me because you don't want help. And then she said she wouldn't see me because she didn't believe in harm reduction. And there's no place for harm reduction with personality disorders. So wow. this is the only person that I had as hope. Wow. And I remember leaving her, her, her little like office that day and just thinking, 
there is nowhere for me to go. Yeah. Can't go to the hospital because they won't admit me unless I slit my wrists. And that's an unfortunate thing to say it like that, but we need to say it like that. Sure. The hospital won't admit you unless you come in bleeding and almost dying. So I can't go to the hospital. I've called all the resources. They're full. They won't call me back. I went to a therapist. She said she doesn't want to help me. So what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. And nothing. I just managed the psychosis alone in my apartment with my friends in the harm reduction community. And even still, I'm coming out of that, you know, and my apartment is a disaster and I'm having trouble feeding myself. And it's like, there are no, there are no resources. There's, there's none. I tried. I really did. And I come from a community where I know the numbers. They don't work. Not just know the numbers. Like, my God, my, like we have laminated pieces of paper with all the websites, all the numbers, they're magnetic at the, you know, like we have all that info, you and I, I, I I say something about that. Yep. This This is kind of a controversial point and it's something I've been thinking about lately. Sure. What I'm afraid that's happening right now in social work is the same thing that I think you were talking about at the beginning with the denial of the being a settler. So I think social workers are pretending that we have resources so that they can feel better about supporting their community. And what's really the case is that we don't. So I would ask all those, those, those social workers who are handing those cards out, have you ever tried to access these services yourself? And that's why we need lived experience in the movement. I've spent 15 years trying to access the services. They're more than a laminated card to me. Right. And I know that they don't work. And yeah. also the privilege around doing it. You have to have a cell phone. You have to be able to make multiple meetings. You have to be really good at self-advocacy. Like I'm pretty well-spoken and pretty, pretty good at advocating for myself, but not everybody is. If you had any sort of a learning disability, how would you be able to fill out that paperwork? And what I'm starting to realize lately, and I say this with love to the social work community, you guys are kind of just cops. Unfortunately, you're surveilling people and you're offering them resources that don't work and don't fit for their needs. And mm-hmm. I believe that you're all good people, but I think there's a little bit of that denial that's happening too, where we want to pretend that we are offering something that will help. And actually what it does for folks like us is it's really dehumanizing and really, really awful because we're shown this idea of like, here's hope, try these things. If you're a good girl enough and you follow all the rules, we'll help you. Mm-hmm. And then you do that and you don't get help. And that's where that suicidal thought comes in of if this is the way it's going to be for the rest of my life, I don't want to be here because I'm tired, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I am so tired of colonial trauma. I can't even, and I just see social worker as a cog of that because, uh, if you read the national inquiry and you read the truth and reconciliation commission reports in both of them, that's their job. Um, the whole reason why child apprehension was invented was to try to figure out how do we erase this people and their culture and their thinking oh social workers that's how we'll do it and they've never taken on the reality of that truth ever and then uh you know with missing and murdered indigenous women it's the same issue is that they apprehend these children and the mothers are obviously like they they fall into addiction and and end up dead and it's awful it's awful and and everyone's okay with it um most people don't read either report 
So they're like, oh my God, social workers are the best thing on the planet. And I have yet to see a social worker be effective at anything they do. Uh, yes. And, and and I also want to have love for the ones that are trying and who are incredibly burnt out and who are suicidal themselves because they know that it's not working. That's what's happening in my industry right now. Everybody who wants to do something good can't do it and get paid. Yeah. So that's the position I'm in. I don't want to work for Alpha House. I yeah. don't agree with how they treat folks. They're not safe for me. I wouldn't go there. So yeah. I don't want to work for them. But I want to do all this work with the, so once again, it's people with lived experience, fixing the problem unpaid on our backs at our own expense. Yeah. All of my friends are burnt out, man. Everybody. I just, before this podcast, I was just sitting upstairs with a bunch of social workers who were sobbing, you know? So I recognize that I'm not coming for the person. I'm coming for the institution and I'm all like. I don't personally attack people. I'm sorry. These institutions, this colonial practice is wrong. Wrong. We have social I workers for every single neighborhood, but most community associations aren't open. So where are these social workers? Like, why are they being assigned by the city of Calgary if we can't ever access them? You know, and, and, and are not, they safe when we access them? They're if not they safe. They have lived experience. How do they know to, how to talk to us? You know how many yeah. social workers have said stuff to me like, you should be grateful for your trauma, Danielle, because look at how strong it made you. Fuck oh. you. Fuck you. I'm actually not grateful for shit. I was strong before I got through the trauma because in my bones, I'm strong, babe. But this trauma did nothing good for me. And I'm not owning any of that anymore. I'm not. Oh, honestly, I, I'm not. A lot of us who are BIPOC, we get told that all the time by meaning, you know, well-meaning people like a social worker did to you. Oh my God, you're so resilient. Resilience is the worst word. I know you're Fuck instantly you. not safe if you yeah. say resilient to me. Exactly. Fuck you. It's I just... shouldn't have to be resilient. Your, your, your society should do more to help me. Yes, exactly. You know, and we always, we, we always want the addict. I'm saying addict. I prefer yeah. people who use drugs, but for this podcast, I'm saying addict. Sure. Public, but we always say, what do we hear about addicts? What does AA tell us? They're liars. They're ungrateful. They need to be humbled. Why? What? Like what? That doesn't even make sense to me. Actually, usually what I've experienced is people who are struggling with their substance use are deeply traumatized. Mm -hmm. They're actually very kind, sensitive, loving people who are hurt by living in this capitalist society. And they actually don't need to be more humble. They actually need to come into their body and feel their pain and acknowledge it. Yes. That's what's helped me is coming inside myself and saying, what was done to you was wrong. Not it was your fault, Danielle, because you're an addict. That well, never- and, and that's the other thing. Why aren't there better supports for folks with sexual abuse? Like we have known sexual abuse since we time immemorial. It's Why my life? I know. And I, I don't get that. It's the- ruined my life. Everywhere I go, I'm in fight or flight. Every, every interaction that I try to have with a safe man, I blow up because I don't buy it. And I'm so messed up. I can't even be alone with my own body. Like I can't even experience intimacy with myself because I'm so disconnected from my body. My body feels like it's not mine and it has never felt like mine. Mm -hmm. It has always felt like something that has been taken from me. Yeah. And I don't know if that will ever change. And it causes me a lot of pain on a daily basis. Oh, I can't imagine. I, I'm so tired of this world, not having adequate resources, not persecuting against uh, sexual abusers. 
like I am so tired of this conversation and uh like to the point where it's like all of these nonprofits, if they close their day their doors tomorrow it would probably help the world at this point because yeah, they I mean, exist you, you, but you caught me on a good day for that conversation because yeah. I've had it up to here with nonprofit organizations you want to know yeah. what I see nonprofits doing I see nonprofits further exploiting marginalized folks yep, I see I see them making them do their movement unpaid yep. I see lateral violence in the space because there's so few opportunities so we're forced to fight with one another yep. I see them you know I, I go to these academic meetings where they talk about these ideas and I'm thinking to myself that's my life that's my life that idea that you're talking about is my life and then I, I get know. paid 60 bucks honorarium fee Think you I know what? I actually won't even go to those anymore. Um, when they they don't pay us, um, but they they want Indigenous outreach, but they don't they do. want to pay for it, even though we are, you know, stolen land, colonial trauma, intergenerational colonial trauma, and they're like, yeah, but we're not going to pay you. Why don't you just want to give back to your community? Um, no one pays me for anything I do. I know. I asked it's- someone the other day to pay me, and they said, "How did they say it? They said it in nice nonprofit words. They said." We're at we're over capacity right now for our financial needs. Well, then I guess you're over capacity for me working here. Well, and you know, I've told people too. I'm like, okay, well, uh, what about writing an invoice showing the amount of volunteer work I do? Um, doesn't that because that's another new little uh, thing they love doing in nonprofit was um, showing how many volunteer hours they were able to uh, source from community in order to justify their bullshit. And uh, yeah, they won't do that though, but they'll take those oh, out. Oh, exploitative. It's oh, so They are so exploitative. And then I actually had an elder. He has since passed away. Um, he, he was a former uh, executive director of the Aboriginal Friendship Center. And he used to say that the reason why nonprofits exist is that you have all these rich white men in these office towers um, making stupid amounts of money off of the backs of indigenous people stolen lands and their rich little wives are sitting in their houses twiddling their thumbs wondering what they can do so that's why nonprofit was invented and I have yet to be able to discredit that yeah I'm 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 really struggling right now I'm I'm struggling in my space I'm struggling with watching the harm that is being done yes that's the other thing that I think is it's like It's sad because when I started doing this work, I was actually so happy because for such a long time, I had wanted to have a voice. So when these folks gave me a voice, I was like, wow, this is so amazing. And then six months goes by and I'm so burnt out. I can't pay my bills. I can't get hired anywhere. I have no resume. I have all these tiny little payments coming from all these places. I'm stuck in a trauma cycle because I continue to go to these things where I have to bleed out my trauma and then leave with no follow-up. And I realized, wow, I thought this was the dream and it's just more shit again. And it that has been really hard recently because yes. now I don't even feel like I'm safe as an in advocacy because mm-hmm. it's what like, it's just, it's exactly like what you said. I, I was at a, some big like caucus thing where all these academics were talking about things. And I was sitting in the back with an elder and we were talking about um, keeping people alive. So we were talking about safe supply and this big harm reduction conference. And the elder looked at me and he said, you know, if we're going to force these people to stay alive, why don't we ever talk about making it better for them to be alive? And I was just like, whoa, because that's the thing is like, 
we're missing that piece of it. It's like, yes, please give me safe supply, but also give us access to resources that work. Give us jobs. You know, it's like with lived experience, you can get on the panel, but you're not going to be the ED, babe. So you can have just enough to be above the poverty line, but you're never going to advance. So then all of us who are down here at the bottom, just fight and I'll own it. I've done it. We all talk about one another. We all fight with one another. We all say horrible things. And it's not our fault. It's because the powers that be dangle one little carrot. They come into a room of hungry, desperate people and they go, one of you can have this. Fight for it. Yeah, I know when the need is for all of you to be at the table and then some it's it's well, the need is they should leave the table. Yeah. How about the EDs leave the table? Yep. How about we all get the table? How about you let us be an ED? You know, I, you want me to be a program coordinator? Let me be a program coordinator. Why can I only be a volunteer coordinator? Because mm-hmm. I don't have a degree. Yeah. That sounds like privilege to me. I wish I could have had a great degree, but I spent my 20s getting assaulted in AA. So couldn't really make my assignments. Yeah, I know it sucks. I uh, I don't know what to say about that. Um, let's talk about if sure. we ruled the world for five minutes. Let's pretend that um, we have solutions. I know we have solutions. Um, can you explain to people who seem to be so afraid of safe supply why safe supply matters, in your sure. opinion? And or oh, or yeah, great question. So the first way that I want to answer this is by talking to these folks and letting them know that we already have an amazing example of safe supply that works all the time. So I would love to ask the people who are listening, how many people drink? So how many of you folks go to a bar on the weekend? So alcohol is regulated safe supply and bars and breweries and clubs are safe use sites. So it's more money to go to the bar on Friday night. You know, you can go to the liquor store and buy a two six. That's cheaper than going to the bar and buying drinks all night. Why do you go to the bar? You go to the bar because there's community. You go to the bar because there's safety. Like what does the bartender do? Cuts people off when they've had too much. It's a safe supply. It's a safe use space. So when we're talking about safe supply, let's talk about the racism of safe supply. So white folks are allowed to have safe supply, but nobody else is because, you know, and and I I bring this up when we, when we talk about things like Coke and crack, you know, how many people who are against drugs use cocaine on the weekend with their buddies? How many of these politicians are snorting lines before they get up there and talk to us? That's okay. But if you're a crackhead, you don't deserve anything. Well, what's the difference between crack and Coke? Nothing. A little bit of baking soda and how you use it. So we have a lot of racism already in in drug culture, but I would say that, yeah, if you're wondering what safe supply and safe consumption looks like, think about bars, think about breweries, think about how happy you are that when your 18 year old son goes out for the first time, someone will cut him off if he's had too much, or if he passes out at the bar, someone's going to phone 911 and make sure he gets safe. Yeah. So that's what I would say to that. The second piece of that is safe supply is just a way for people to medically be supported. That's all it is. It's just medical support. It's so confusing to me. It's like, no one's coming for insulin. No one's saying, damn, those diabetics, do they really need that insulin? Maybe we are giving them too much insulin, actually. We don't say that at all. This is just a medical response. 
we have such a toxic supply out there right now, which means people are buying one thing and they're actually getting a bunch of other things. So that's why I use terms like poisoning instead of overdose, because no one's intentionally doing this. They're buying something that they think is one thing. And because it's so toxic, it's something else. So what safe supply does is allow people to get the regulated medicine that they need and to use it and consume it safely. You know, fentanyl is not something that you can just come off of. That is so dangerous. We need to support people in other ways with opioid management while they're doing this. You know, even even I talk about detox a lot because people are always like, oh, well, they can just go to detox and be supported. We have one medical detox in Calgary. It's Renfrew. It is the most horrific place in the world to get in. You come early in the morning and you sit in a room full of a bunch of different people who are all sick and you basically all beg that you're the sickest one. And maybe they let one person in. You know, it took me five days before I was admitted to Renfrew. And so what that meant was I had to say just sick enough that I'd be considered, but not too sick that I would die. I'm not a doctor. How how am I supposed to regulate that? And so safe supply allows people to be medically supported while they're figuring out whatever they need to figure out. Like something that I've really explored lately in my own journey with harm reduction is, and I think this is a hard one, but for some people with the trauma that they have, being free from substances may never be a reality for them. And that that's okay. And I would rather we just support that medically than force them to die. Mm-hmm. So I think safe supply is a medical response to a medical crisis. Yeah, and I hear you. If we were able to decriminalize things, we wouldn't. Yeah, we we wouldn't even need this. But one point I just want to quickly make is when we say safe supply, we want it, but we also want it to be community regulated because. Mm-hmm. We have safe supply in some places, but it's not community regulated. So you're still being told what you can and can't do and what your dose needs to be. And that doesn't work either. Mm -hmm. I believe it should be patient centered. Someone should come in, be honest about what they're using and be honest about what they need. And we should just give them that. You know, um, I find it so hard to even have this conversation in Alberta. I know a lot of people claim to be proud of our medical system. But like, I'll tell you, uh, the pharmacists are not on board at all. Um, So just for you, because you don't know me really, um, you know, I've posted about this and I've done podcasts on it already, but as a status native, I have access to one Narcan a day. So, uh, and I hate that I have to do this, but it, I find it very frustrating, even in so-called harm reduction circles, when I talk about Narcan, they start talking about naloxone and naloxone are the vials with the needles. It's just a tight Narcan. Narcan is the uh, nasal spray. So I'm allowed to have a box of nasal spray Narcan, which has two pieces to it. One for each nostril. I'm allowed to have one of those a day. And so I have tried to work with different pharmacists to access my one Narcan box a day. And I have found so much stigma And like, you want to talk about privilege. First of all, I am not in recovery. I don't have a sobriety journey. Um, I have watched enough friends of mine, uh, family drinking 
and living, dying. <laughs> I, I, I never have been attracted to drinking regularly nor um, using substance regularly. And gratefully, I don't have, the like I have trauma, but I haven't used uh, drugs or alcohol as a coping mechanism. So I'm housed. I've, I'm married, <laughs> married to a man and that's its own privilege. And so here I am just like suburban housewife trying to access my box of Narcan a day. And I come across so much ugly stigma from the pharmacists and them trying to work with me and the awful, awful things that settlers have said to me who are pharmacists, like I, I the racism from people who are brown, um, people who are Asian, you know, so BIPOC can absolutely have anti-Indigenous bias. So if I can't access it as readily available as I should be able to, I can't imagine what an unhoused person who's, you know, single and trying to survive day to day, like they will never access these things. So the, yeah. the very few services that are available to us it right. are so difficult to get. And in fact, I had one pharmacist who said, well, you need a, a prescription for this. And I'm like, no, I don't. And they're like, well, we're not giving it to you without one. So I had to go to, originally I went to my walk-in doctor and she refused. So then I had to go to the Alberta Virtual Indigenous Care Clinic. And I'm not going to lie, not all of them are great doctors who, who understand what's going on. Uh, one did give me a prescription in order for me to get the Narcan that I should be able to access without a prescription. Um, it, it's awful. I, I, I can't believe how hard they make it. And my husband, like, he's like, you know, don't just keep going. But honestly, there are days I'm like, this is the simplest thing for me to be able to do. And yet it is just barrier after barrier. And with the best of respect and deepest respect to these so-called fucking white um, harm reduction racist settlers are like, oh my God, I can so help you get supply, blah, blah, blah. I have sent emails to the email you're supposed to send and I, I don't get it. And um, all of the white saviors, oh my God, we're so gonna help you. And they never do. They don't get it. They don't understand what I'm saying. They don't understand what, what I'm experiencing is systemic racism from the medical field in Alberta. And what, what is all of this for? So that I can give some Narcan to somebody I see on the streets. That's what this is for. And, and yet they, they're not on side. They're, they're not on, on this team. And I've seen this with police a lot. So you're speaking about this with um, pharmacists. I've also seen this. I've gone to pharmacies as well as an outreach worker and I've asked for Narcan kits. And when the person behind the counter gives it to me, I always do a test and I always say, can you tell me how to use this? Because when you get anything from a pharmacist, they're supposed to let you know how to use it, right? You go get your prescription from the doctor. They're supposed to tell you what to do. So I will say to the pharmacy worker, can you tell me how to use this? And they go, we don't know. We don't want, we don't have anything to do with this. I don't even know why we order it. So, okay, they have it, but they don't even know how to use it themselves. They're not carrying themselves. And then not to mention what I've seen with police. So as an outreach worker, I've been to encampment sweeps where police officers throw out Narcan kits. I have seen and taken photos of garbages that are full of Narcan kits that police have apprehended from our community and thrown out. 
And that is just really kind of letting you know how we feel about people who use drugs. We absolutely want those people to die. Like I'll say that with my full chest. They are easier for us if they're dead. They are less of a burden onto our system if they're dead. And we also believe that they should die because we think it's a moral failing in them. If you can't choose sobriety, the consequence of death, that's your consequence. But you know what? Here's the irony. Because we're in this so-called, you know, Christian conservative world, and that's what cops are. Um, it, it is actually economically and and fiscally better to be giving um, housing, safe supply, and we're not doing that. It's they would cheaper. rather invest that money into, you know, getting another cop to beat the crap out of, uh, like, to bully, really. Mm-hmm. Really no, they bully. absolutely bully. I, I, I've seen cops ticket passed out people. So as an outreach worker, I have seen cops put a loitering ticket on a passed out person who is in a poisoning and put the ticket on their body and walk away yeah. instead of treating them. Yeah. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I used to fight with cops a lot. And then I had someone in the space tell me that when I do that as a white woman, now they're angry and embarrassed. And for the rest of the day, they'll be harder on the unhoused. And that's a very good point. But I I got into it with a cop the other day and I said, you know, this is racism and genocide against the indigenous culture. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, so what you're saying only natives do drugs? Like that's how much he didn't understand what I was saying and how he wanted to flip it on me as me being the problem. And it's just like, you have to stop, you know, like what's the point in even continuing with someone like that, you know? Well, and that, that is how I am feeling like. I can tell people, but it's back to the leading a horse to water. You know, you can't force them to drink it. So how did it impact you? Like, I just want to say, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're trying to do something for your community and experiencing systemic racism. That's trauma on you. Yep. And I don't want you to have to hold that either. Yeah. No, I talk about, especially in the end, uh, racial battle fatigue. And this is just like one more example of it. And I tell people and they, it goes in one ear and out the other, like they just don't get it. And that's why I have no time or space anymore for these white savior street outworkers who don't understand or nor respect like a Taylor McNally or an Adora Nofor, because I, they don't understand what racial trauma is one. And if you're indigenous, you don't understand what colonialism actually is. Like nothing is safe, nothing. And I will never understand that. Like, and I say that at every protest, I can be at a protest because I'm not going to go to jail. Yeah. I could not be at that protest safely if I was indigenous. Yeah. The mouth that I have on me would have been beaten out of me by law enforcement a long time ago if I wasn't a white woman. Well, and and I try to tell people that like, they always go, why doesn't your community show up? And I'm like, literally, because we are the ones being impacted by this there, we are disproportionately in the jails, we are disproportionately having our children apprehended, because of this racism that you guys seem to be so fucking blind to. And um, like, it's obvious if you're, you're looking, but you know, folks purposely don't right? <laughs> it's but that's something like even so in Edmonton, there was a huge encampment sweep that happened uh, a week ago at the coldest time of the year. And there was a, oh, this is gonna make me cry. There was a beautiful community protest by an Indigenous encampment. And they 
like protested in the most peaceful, beautiful way. And what the police did to them was so horrific. There was a young man that was drumming in solidarity of his people. And there is a video that you can find of the police breaking his neck for doing that for his community. They arrested the indigenous photographer and they arrested the elder. And they were inside their teepee supporting their community and they are the ones that got arrested. Yeah. None of my white friends who were doing harm reduction work got arrested. I'm grateful that they were there, but they didn't get arrested. It was the indigenous culture that was attacked. Yeah. And it was the indigenous culture that is facing extreme results now as a result. And it just is so horrific to see. Yeah, I watched just... that video over and over again for a day and I, I was sick. And yeah. guess what? It's caught on video and no one gives a shit. And I'll, I'll say this. So um, the people you're talking about, uh, we have one of our retired elders here who worked for the city of Calgary. That was one of her grandchildren. So her grandson was one of the fellows that you're describing. Um, his dad is a famous painter and his mom is a social worker. They're all indigenous. And so watching them trying to process this um, and then reading about his wife in the journal uh, saying the words, you know, my husband gives out bologna sandwiches every Friday. He never comes home with a toque on his head. He's a, you know, a trades guy. So he works hard all week just so that he can help his community Friday night. And this is the type of thing that happens. The elder you're saying you're talking about is Roy Cardinal. Um, you know, he is he's amazing, sober. He was amazing. he's trying to help people on their sobriety, on their recovery journey. And this is what the police did to him. And Brian Brandy Morin is the journalist that you're talking about. And she's internationally well respected. What she won a Pulitzer. And uh, yeah, that's what the police in Canada treat Indigenous Pulitzer winners as. And that's what they did to Indigenous people when everyone was looking. Yeah. So that should really tell our community something. They knew that people were bearing witness to this. They knew that people were videotaping them and they still felt that they could act that way. And they won't face repercussions. And I can't imagine what that does for your community well there's no justice system for us like so at the same time that this was all going down the report came out about what the rcmp were doing to the wetsuitwin as well and like so this is really graphic for anybody who's about to listen to this you might just want to mute me for a minute um they basically took a, a man with autism and um beat the crap out of him while he was handcuffed and then while um, he was on the ground, grabbed his balls and twisted them and said, have you had enough uh, resisting yet? And uh, so this is how, you know, um, the RCMP treat us. And, you know, obviously the Edmonton police treat us and you've witnessed how the Calgary police treat us. And uh, so you, you know that there's no justice. And today, out of all days, the court uh, said that the federal government was going against people's uh, charter rights for the freedom convoy, but we have never heard the courts rule in our favor for the rights that they regularly, you know, violate. Mm -hmm. So for me, there's no justice for indigenous, like this is a settler colonial project and we are 
at the end of it, right? Like the sooner that we're eliminated, the better for everybody else. And we don't see in the so-called time of reconciliation and this time of understanding Peter treaty partnership, you know, non-Indigenous stepping up and doing more. Um, they'll write a book about how bad they feel about it, but they won't be in the front lines, right? Mm -hmm. They'll let Taylor McNally go to jail and then talk about her negatively behind her back. They and they won't. do like oh I, I know I, they do I I've, I would love I've had to, to cut that. lots of people out like when you talked about how we eat each other that's like I can't work with the crews that are down there I have to do this on my own independently because I can't work with them they're too white settler savior colonial mentality so um you know you and I share a mutual friend and he does he tries to help people with their sobriety as well he's a social worker um you know, and, and he finally, this is, uh, came out of the church finally and, and seeing how that is hurtful to everybody and how people who are trying to work on sobriety, like the colonial trauma that regularly happens, whether you're, you're white, indigenous or black, it it's once the state has decided they're not going to help you, they may, they just bully you Yeah, in every and, form. And you know, I will say that the friend that you're talking about, I have taken a hit in the harm reduction community for being associated with him because he, of, of his past. So this community that's supposed to be like loving and forgiving and meeting people where they're at now judges me by association with someone who used to work in law enforcement and somebody who used to work with the, even though what he has done has been so amazing and, and he is an ally and he is a safe person and I would never bring someone around if they are. I'm taking a hit right now for even being associated with this person that we're talking about. So it just shows you, it's, it's a really horrible time. I don't wanna work with police. I don't want to work as a social worker. So any organization that's doing those things isn't safe. Any volunteer outreach that's doing something out of a church isn't safe. Yeah. My own community isn't safe because they will question me and everything that I do. Yeah. So it's just everywhere I'm looking, people are in rooms alone sobbing. Yeah. And I don't know what we do anymore. Yeah. Um, community care is the only route I think we can go. And, um, you know, even for me, I just, I, I've been debating what, how, how I can even possibly be helpful in any of this. And, you know, I'll have people who have great ideas, but I, I just know what the barriers are for them, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you're going to be the yeah. new person that cycles through the system now. And it sucks watching they just it get chewed up and burnt yeah. up. And then one of two things happen. Yeah. They end up succumbing and going and working at a nonprofit yeah. or they end up like me quitting all their jobs. And I don't know how I'm going to pay March rent. So, yeah. you know, and, and I, I, I also recognize that I'm a year into this, you know, so man, there's a lot, I don't know. And there's a lot that can still be broken out of me. But I, I remember I told one of my community friends that I was thinking about getting a job at Alpha house and he's an unhoused person and he's very close to me. And he looked at me and he said, don't go to the dark side. <laughs> and he could not be more right. And I will serve coffee and wait tables and, and do whatever I can so that I don't go to the dark side. Because once I work at those places, I'm no longer safe for the people that I want to work with. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And that that's the real problem, right? Is, is that you don't want to be with these people anymore. And you know, I also and, don't really want to hear academics talking about it anymore either. I don't oh, really want to hear them talking about lateral violence. Yeah. 
Babe, I live it every day. I live it because of you guys, because you guys keep creating resources that we can't get jobs at real jobs. You know, sure. I can work overnight. I can work night shift somewhere for 19 an hour. That's all they give us. And then they say, why are you guys fighting? We gave you all these opportunities. People who use drugs, be happy. Yeah, I know. it's, It's a lot. And, you know, I'm grateful for people like you and, and I, just hope that some of this matters in some way on the earth. But I also want to acknowledge where did harm reduction come from? I really want to make sure I say this. It did not come from white people. The indigenous community has been practicing harm reduction forever. <laughs> so, well, I appreciate that. That's for sure. Yeah. Is there anything else that you absolutely want to say today? Uh, just know you're welcome back anytime, first and foremost. Yeah, I, we have to come back. Like, yeah. how could we yeah. get it all out in just one? There's no we way. We cannot. Um, like we touched, we touched on 13 stepping, sexual abuse. We talked about sobriety. We talked about nonprofit. Like it, it, but that is what we have to do in order to even like start a conversation. So to me, it's important. And, you know, I think next time that you come back, what we'll talk about, whatever it is you want to talk about, but that bigger picture is that people need to know who you are and they need to see, you know, your picture and such. So, uh, you know, if you watch my YouTube, you'll get to see the lovely Danielle English. So thank you for coming on my podcast today. I'm going to give a whole bunch of resources. So if you want to hang, hang on, um, and please feel free to pop in as I talk. These are pretty much the standard ones I have. Um, I wanted to let people know that the uh, Stonewall Recovery Center, which is Canada's first to SLGBTQ treatment facility, uh, they're going to be having a big gala. And so I am trying to work with them about trying to gather some two spirit names to be said and memorialized as part of their commitment to the national inquiry calls to justice and reconciliation in general. So if you have a two spirit person that, um, you know, had addiction issues, sobriety, um, apprehended houselessness, anything, um, and you want them to be memorialized, we will absolutely do that. Uh, so far I have two names, that's it. So I got to go through my old list and, and just add the other, I think I only have four people on that list. So, and I know one of them is an overlap. I just got more of that one story anyway. So if you know, two spirit people that you want their names said at the, uh, Stonewall recovery gala, uh, we would love to say them, just send me your message. Um, For folks who are unaware, I have an Indigenous book club. I've had it since 2016. Uh, You're more than welcome to join us at any point in time. Just message me and I will send you the link and the book list. If you are a person that knows more about Indigenous uh, communities, that you're educated and you want to do actual action as opposed to the sitting around feeling poor for yourself, you can come join our Reconciliation Action Group. We are trying to do some movement, but at the same time, I think it's really important that um, settlers see the barriers that are up against Indigenous people for simple things, just asking Diefenbaker chiefs to not call themselves Diefenbaker chiefs. Uh, what they do, the boards of education, they they cycle through students until they finally graduate. So they, do, they don't have to change the name. And we've seen that with Langevin. So I, I really encourage people, if you want to see change, then join the Reconciliation Action Group and see how hard we're fighting and how little of us are actually doing that work. 
I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training, cultural first aid, and all of them to try to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, and 2SLGBTQ plus to speak. According to the 2023 Quality of Life report from the Calgary Foundation, 88% of racialized Calgarians feel uncomfortable or out of place because of their religion, ethnicity, skin color, language, culture, accent, gender, or sexual orientation, which is up 75% from 2023. And I'll be really curious with all of this conversation of free Palestine, how the 2024 quality of life report is going to look there. Um, 84% of racialized Calgarians believe racism exists. 66 of non-racialized believe that. I want to say thank you to Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fritkin of here to help.bc.ca. I have um, a resource of what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. This should be a minimum 101 for anyone who is working with Indigenous population, which is literally all public servants. Um, their work and that cultural action tools are available. Please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight it here. Internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence that many uh, equity deserving groups experienced by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. Donna Bevins put together racialequitytools.org, so you can send her a donation, but you can look through the resource files about what is internalized racism as well, so that you can work on that. I know I work on it for me as well. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee. Sounds like the Calgary police could use this. So if you go to AFSC.org and you search for the do's and don'ts of bystander intervention, you can see some ways to de-escalate as opposed to escalate. But I guess if you have a gun on your hip, as uh, been said, then, then you're fine. Um, I wish anyone who follows me on my social media would watch the anti-racism organizational lead for the city of Calgary. He did a presentation on the journey of becoming an anti-racism leader. So, and we heard Danielle kind of talking about seeing racism and calling it out. It is important that everybody start working on becoming an anti-racism leader. So I encourage everyone to. Uh, Taylor McNally and Dor Adora Norfolk are part of our YYC Black Lives Matter activists, and they're being legally targeted. So you can go and support their legal funds as well at stopthestack.ca. They have tons of resources there on Instagram as well. Um, Indigenous people have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs, indigenous education, mental health service, um, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party is directly negatively impacting equity deserving people demand that they implement the truth and reconciliation commission calls to action the recommendations of the royal commission on aboriginal peoples the multiple reports on child welfare reform and violence prevention 231 calls to justice from the national inquiry and the 113 pathways of justice that's the alberta um, look at the national inquiry 
uh, municipally, we also have the White Goose Flying Report. Denying all of these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are extreme are experiencing extreme racism in every single institution with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from these organizations, these nonprofits, these sports clubs, these platforms, and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all politicians, community organizations. Uh, sports clubs, nonprofits, Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies because there's so many of them. Um, you know, we were talking about enc- encampments here and in Edmonton. And I mean, last year at this time, Stephanie Harp and I did that emergency podcast when it was stupid Arctic cold and the city thought it was a great idea to take the um, doors off the bus shelters causing um, an over amount of death and ampu- amputations and frostbite. And we asked our allies to work with us. And yeah, here we are still talking about the same thing. You can yeah. go to aboriginalalert.ca and uh, have a look at all of the alerts of Indigenous people going missing. Uh, the Missing Children's Society of Canada, she was working with to try to have more Indigenous inclusion. Our statement from last year is still on the women's homelessness.ca. Um, back to the conversation about um, drug poisoning. You know, we know the numbers are continuing to rise. July was 168 alone, and that's just going to continue working. These drug poisons. If, if you want updated information on the drug poisoning crisis with accurate numbers, you can go to Drug Data Decoded. Uh, there's a lot of information there about what's currently happening and especially how it's impacting Indigenous cultures. You can also look at Kapud for any resources about being safe for people who use drugs. Yes. And for folks who don't know, we've had Ewan Thompson, who does all of that on our show regularly and I share his information all the time on socials so that's where you can look if you know someone who's using using substances we ask that you don't use alone if you are using alone contact the national overdose response service to try to create a safety uh, a plan you can also dial at 1-888-688-NORS for support or download the Braves or Doors app or the Lifeguard app If you are experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talked about today and need to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you go to their website, hopeforwellness.ca, they have a text box. And if more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can go to 844-413-6649. It is a toll-free national 24 crisis line for folks. Uh, You can also go to the Indian Residential School Survivors and Family Hotline at 866-925-4419. The Native Youth Crisis Hotline is 877-209-1266. For non-Indigenous people, there is a functioning 211 in your area. You can also dial 988. You can also go to their website, crisisservicescanada.ca, and the kids' help phone, 1-800-668-6868. 
For 2SLGBTQ, uh, you can go to lifevoice.ca for tons of resources. The Trans Lifeline is 877-330-6366. The Trevor Project is 866-844-7386. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care and how I take my power back. This is why I started the podcast, to speak freely without interruption without tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinions, but sure want to tell us theirs, even if they know nothing about colonialism, constant surveillance of our people, protests, vigils, and our rights. I and many others share info on microaggressions daily, so it's just unacceptable to say it anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. Folks like me, are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeeping, folks who survive off the status quo, folks who are so in the trauma that they stop people from being able to do the work and deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me, Indigenous people, folks with disabilities, QT, BIPOC, and more. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, to my granny of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family, and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I am a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to my husband for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, and the father of our child, he has supported me down my journey of the Red Road and has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. To our child, uh, we are blessed to learn from you daily, and we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my family and my, my daughter especially will be proud in the future discussing these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe, and you can go to nativecalgarian.com if you want to hire me to talk to your folks. I want to end by giving side-eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, are you being my dish? Thank you folks for listening.